Hey, Mac, when does deer season start? Well, if you want the best deer herd possible, Lanny, you need to start right now. Right now. That's, That's why right. we're starting our promotion. I mean, we've got a deer season starts now promotion on plantbiologic.com where you can pick up our game changer soybeans, our forage soybeans, and our spring protein peas. While you're there, you might as well go ahead and pick up some brassicas like our final forage and winter bowls. Yeah, stock up for the cool season planting right now. Listeners to the GK Podcast, if you use coupon code GKPOD, you can save an additional 10% off our entire selection of warm season, cool season, and clover food plot seed. Get started today and visit plantbiologic.com for an unforgettable fall. I am Jeff Foxworthy, and welcome to Gamekeeper Podcast. If you want to learn more about farming for wildlife and habitat management, then, buddy, you are in the right place. Join the Gamekeeper crew direct from Mossy Oak Land Enhancement Studio as they discuss the latest wildlife and habitat management practices, news, and, of course, hunting. There's no telling what you'll learn, but I'm going to tell you, I bet it's interesting. Enjoy. So, welcome to the First Gamekeepers podcast here mm-hmm. oh, in well. the luxurious mole hole in West Point, <laughs> Mississippi, in the bowels of the mole hole yes, here. Yes, that's right. Um, I'm really excited. About, oh, we've got uh, Lanny Wallace over here to my right, and then the heavy breathing you can hear, that's Dudley Phelps over here to my left, and Jason Cleveland is on the board. He's a big help to us all, and we've got a our first guest is Dr. Bronson Strickland from Mississippi State University, and we've done a lot of things with bronson yeah. through the years what a what a good guy and we're just i'm just gonna call him bronson not dr strickland that sounds better but we often lovingly refer to him around here as dr know-it-all he's got it let me tell you did you know we call you that uh you've said it a few times oh, okay yeah. good good we're typically pretty up front <laughs> and I didn't know the tone. I, you know, I didn't know if that was something nice you were saying or it was kind of derogatory. Well, you know, if we pick on you, we love you. That's just the bottom line around it, here. It's all oh, out yeah. of respect. Yeah, 100% what, respect. So today, you know, well, there's a couple of topics. We want to learn a little bit more about you or give you a, a platform to tell about the Mississippi State uh, Deer Lab, which we've just all been so impressed with. And then we want to dive into antler genesis a little bit later on down the show so uh, dr bronson bronson as uh, Do- dr strickland dr strickland Do- dr bronson strickland uh, uh, you've got two last names for a f- you're exactly right it's a- been a problem my whole life having two last names bobby's got two first names bobby and cole yeah yeah mm. Mm. so uh, guys what's been going the month of june we're just a few days into it but yeah you know turkey season's obviously winded down i think everybody's kind of uh, thinking about the summer, uh, some pine management, some spring food plots going in. What's on your mind at your farm, Dud? Well, we've been doing some road work. Mm-hmm. Uh, had a bridge washout. Uh, oh, doing uh, lemon some stuff, spraying some clover. Yeah, we've actually stuff like that. Uh, I mean, here weather-wise, we've had the first break since uh, I would call them the spring, early spring rain. So it's been a lot of activity. It suddenly turned hot. Mm-hmm. You know, that this humid week. hot. Yeah. Welcome to Mississippi. What about you, Bronson? Uh, I guess primarily what, what you guys have been talking about. Been out looking at a lot of clover. The uh, the mild spring we had was really good for a lot of the clover. But now it's time, yes, doing some spraying and preparing for warm season food plots and, and things like that. Um 
that's probably been the biggest thing. Of course, you know, at a, at a university, um, we had all of our students that were wrapping up for spring semester. So we've been uh, reading their thesis and going through their presentations and their defenses and all that sort of stuff. So uh, that's, that's probably been the biggest things here the last couple months. Well, you know, through the years, as we've done this Gamekeeper television show, you guys have brought to us several projects, you know, the, that have, have been, absolutely been fascinating, but none more so than the the genetic study that we've got a show that on, uh, here in a few weeks will air uh, where y'all captured some deer with helicopters. That was just an – everybody that has seen that has just been absolutely fascinated by it. It is a uh, – well, for, first of all, just really lucky, just so lucky that I could, could be a part of that. And, uh, you know, it's just one of those little small world things that um, the guy who, who was managing that project, Donnie Drager, uh, we were roommates back in college when we were master's students. And so we've, of course, kept a really good relationship, and I'm more on the deer research side now, and, and of course, he's a – He's a big ranch manager, manages a couple ranches, actually. And so started thinking about this project, heck, 15 years ago now. Wow. And uh, it, it's one of a kind. And uh, I, I say that it's one of a kind because of the scale. I don't know if people can realize the amount of time and money uh, when you go into a study that's a minimum of 10 years. And, and this one ended up being like 13 years uh, it's a heck of a commitment from everybody involved, from the ranch owner, the manager, uh, the universities allocating time and resources. But I, t I tell you what, guys, it, it answered the question and the whole point of that project, uh, as people will see on the Gamekeepers episode, um, was seeing if culling for genetics would work at a population scale. In other words, with a free-ranging population and the answer was definitively, I mean, there's no question about it. The answer was definitively, it does not work. And I guess I won't steal the thunder from the show. People can watch the show and learn more about it, uh, Bobby. But that, that's the, the main thrust of it there. Well, we'll have you back on. We'll do another podcast around. There's two episodes of that show. So we'll certainly have you back on and and drill into that as deep as we need to go to explain that because that's you're going to make a lot of people scratch their heads on that one because you know through the years i can remember as long as i've been deer hunting is you know people felt like they could influence their deer herd by with their trigger finger they still do yeah they still do i think that's the best thing about it and that just reinforces the importance and value of these you know wildlife research institutes like mississippi state university with the deer lab and all the things that's going out there we're really really blessed here in this country, not only to be able to hunt and fish, but to have these guys like, you know, Bronson that, you know, make their living, letting us really know what's going on. I mean, Dudley hit the nail on the head. It's still going on. Mm -hmm. And that's how we learn everything is from them. Absolutely. So, so thanks. Thanks, Bronson. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Well, hey, again, I, I, I keep saying I'm lucky. I'm just, uh, I, I'm really lucky there's a profession you know, that, that allows me to, to have a job. Quite honestly, I don't know if I'm fit really for anything else. So <laughs> I can appreciate uh, we that. We all feel the yeah. same yeah. way. We all, that's <laughs> how we all ended up here. That's for sure. <laughs> so is there anything going on at the deer lab that you want to uh, take a minute and, and tell folks about or tell them how to find out more about the MSU deer lab? 
Yeah, a couple things. We try to keep our website updated. Of course, you know how that is. Some, you know, it may be a couple months before things get updated, but um, we have what, what we think is is a very informative website, uh, msudeerlab.com. Just Google that; it'll pop up, and uh, we have it uh, built to be uh, educational. And so all the most common questions about deer biology and deer management you'll find there. And, and then we also have a podcast. Uh, Dudley, you've been on our podcast before, but it, it's uh-huh. called uh, Deer University, Deer University. And it is from a perspective of um, – so it's not a hunting podcast, but it's about deer biology and deer management. And we try to relate things, questions, topics, issues – that hunters and managers encounter, those are the things we, we try to talk about uh, on that podcast. So uh, those are the big things now. We are wrapping up, in terms of current events, wrapping up what we have been calling our, our Buck Movements Project. And so we have about two years of data on about 50 or 55 bucks uh, in central Mississippi, and we're really just getting into that. We had our first series of students finish their projects up and answer some basic questions. But, you know, literally we have hundreds and hundreds of thousands of locations of these bucks through the hunting season. So we're tracking them a month before deer season begins, and then we stop tracking them at a high intensity uh, about a month after it ends. And we're just learning how uh, their their movements and behaviors are changing throughout the year. So that, that's going to literally keep me busy for years to come. Mm-hmm. That's exciting. Yeah, I think I remember hearing about one of those deer uh, that had some pretty interesting travel patterns. Uh, I want to say he was in Madison County and maybe going towards Yazoo and back uh, 20 to 30 miles maybe. Um, I don't, I don't remember if that's the same study or not, but, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So yeah, we, we were able to, uh, document, um, we kind of simplify things and make things easy, easy on us, but we kind of group them into thirds that a a third of the bucks we call norm from cheers. That's where he's going to be, you know, every certain time that's where that buck's going to be in that particular area. You know, we say that's a sedentary group of bucks on the other extreme. We have a group of bucks. They're just all over the place. They are just bouncing around the landscape. And and Dudley, um, you're referring to an extreme case where it was about 13 or 14 miles. Okay. And. And it was one of those things, Dudley, where something, uh, I'll be completely honest, feedback I've gotten over the years, you know, that we see from trail cameras. And quite honestly, I've always thought, I just I just don't see that happening. <laughs> but someone would say, um, uh, I've been watching this buck, you know, every day or two or several times a day. I get this buck on this particular camera and on such and such date, it's gone. Never to see it again. Right. And, you know, and I'm sitting back going, well, you know, something happened, got killed, even if it's not hunting season, you know, got run over. There's a lot of things can happen to a deer. Uh, and then some people will say, and then within a week's time, and some will even say within a day or two's time, I'll pick that buck up again the next year. 
I thought, man, that is just really coincidental. And I think, you know, I'm sure crazy stuff happens every once in a while, but it happened with one of our bucks. So again, out of our sample of, you know, 50 some odd bucks, we had this one that within, a, within about a week's time, two years in a row, would pick up and go about 13 miles the way the crow flies and set up a completely new home range. Hmm. And about six months later, pick up, come 13 miles back to our study area and hang out there for six months. So these things like that, that, that hunters have been seeing on trail cameras, there is definitely some support for that. Would that particular buck go back to the same spot every time? Just two spots yeah. in here? Yeah. Im- imagine his home range looking like a dumbbell. Huh. So he got half the year, he got all these points clustered in one spot. And then there's this long line, this trail mm-hmm. where he would go back and forth. And, and there's a bunch of points over there. But yeah, it was like, uh, rather than staying in the same spot 12 months, he would go a particular place for six, pick up, completely move, you know, like people spending summer, you know, up north mm-hmm. and down in Florida, down south. Interesting. That is fascinating. Yeah. Wow. Well, so look, learning a little bit about you is uh, one of the things that Lanny said uh, the other day when we were talking about you is wonder what kind of research, what is he what is Bronson the most interested in? Um, yeah, so I, I'm a professor, and, you know, we definitely can go down our little uh, research directions that interest us, and I've certainly had some of those things in the past that have fascinated me and spent time on them. And, uh, but the things that really excite me are research projects that are going to influence people. It's going to change their mind, change the way they are managing deer or thinking about deer or thinking about deer management. Uh, Those are the things that uh, I really appreciate. And those are the things, quite quite frankly, let me me tell you another reason we're lucky – here in Mississippi and a lot of the Southeast, we've got a fantastic state wildlife agency, the Mississippi Department of Wildlife, Fisheries and Parks, that funds a lot of this research that we do. And so it is really a great marriage of you, you have the, the biologists and the managers that are interacting with the hunting public. And they're coming up with these questions. We don't know the answer to this. And so we'll have a meeting, we'll get together, and we'll say, hey, is this something we can design a research project to address? And uh, and that's what we do. Here's a great example. Well, uh, the, the buck movement study I was just talking about, the genesis of that was MDWF&P. Wanting to figure out when they're interacting with hunters, where are these bucks at? We don't see them anymore. What, what happened to them? That was the genesis of this project. Hmm. Another one you guys are familiar with, we've talked about in the past, was our, again, a huge commitment because it was a 10-year study, uh, what we call that environment and genetics study, but it's the genetics versus nutrition. And that's where we went all throughout the state of Mississippi and collected those pregnant does. And we have our really, really what we call our, our good soil region or our ag region in the Delta where we grow really, really big deer. And then we have some regions of the state where we don't grow as big of deer body or antler size, like in the Southern part of our state. And, you know, we brought those, those deer back to the, to the deer lab and uh, 
monitored those fawns and fed them the exact same nutrition. And uh, y'all are familiar with how that turned out, mm-hmm. but um, that, that took 10 years of time to do that. But the, the moral of the story and what was so important is that prior to this research, every year, uh, the state agency was dealing with people wanting to move deer around to, quote, improve the genetics. We need to take some of these deer from the Delta that obviously have these good good uh, antler genetics, and we need to take them to South Mississippi and turn them loose so they can have good antler genetics. But what we learned is it's just nutrition. That's all it was. Generation after generation after generation, those deer in the Delta – are eating agricultural crops, and they have a lot of good naturally occurring deer forages that are of high quality. And, and that's all it was. So I'm sorry that was a very long-winded answer, but those types of projects that I think really answer important questions uh, and change the way people are going to manage deer, uh, that, that's what makes me tick. Okay. Sounds like we got a gamekeeper on the line here, boys. <laughs> <laughs> Hey folks, it's Jeff Foxworthy. You know, when I was a kid, my dad bought back the farm that he had grown up on, and I absolutely loved that place. I knew every square inch of it. It truly was my favorite place on earth. And when you're looking to find a favorite place for you and your family, Mossy Oak Properties can help. Visit MossyOakProperties.com to begin your search today. Well, let's get right into this antler genesis. It's a fascinating topic. We've, uh, you know, through the, the the production of this television show, we've learned a lot more. Uh, we've just there's there's a lot of uh, old wives' tales and urban legends that we've all heard, and that we've 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 worked to kind of displace some of that. But uh, the fact that that an animal can grow a set of antlers in just a few months. And that tissue grows so fast. It, it It's absolutely fascinating. Yeah, absolutely. That was the coolest thing about this, even working on this production for us, is, I mean, whitetails have been a centerpiece of my life and your life, everybody's life here. Mm-hmm. And through this, how much you continue to learn, you know, it, it is just amazing. Um, so, yeah, nobody yeah, and, doesn't like antlers. And we're going to continue to learn. I, I was at a conference uh, about a year ago, and uh, more of the people, and they were using words I didn't understand because it was some really complex chemistry and physiology and stuff like that. But, yeah, really getting into understanding how unique of a tissue this is. Um, and, and you guys have probably heard before that, um, you know, a lot of medical researchers mm-hmm. will look at antlers as a model because it is so unique and how you generate and form bone in such a short period of time and, and you know it opens doors for what happens with humans when you know they lose a bone from an accident is, is there any hope someday that we could maybe regrow some of that tissue and so uh antlers are used as a as a model from from that perspective so yeah it is really something unique in mother nature well i don't think there's anything that fascinates the hunting public as much as antlers and um, I mean, when yeah, you, you can't look at, deny that yeah, when no. you look across the board, I mean, that's kind of what makes people tick. I mean, you've got now you've got a lot of people that are really into 
uh, the meat and putting meat in the sure. freezer and, and whatnot. But at the end of the day, everybody wants to see. Everybody would like to have an opportunity at a big white tail. Look, I'm a meat eater as you get. You know, I'm all about the food. There's no question about that. However, if a giant doe is standing out there, and old big boy standing out there. There's no, you know, if, ands, or buts. What's going to happen with that? Well, scenario. if you load your rifle. Well, this is a good point. You know? <laughs> I have a tendency to forget some of the details sometimes. <laughs> so, hey, but I had backup, you know. Uh, well, yeah, you do. But so, Bronson, the one of the things, you know, from a gamekeeper's perspective, and uh, you know, we're always wanting to learn how better ways to do things. But uh, selfishly, I think what we're wanting to do is to learn how to grow a bigger deer. Mm-hmm. And uh, and you know what we've learned is we've got to make that whole that the whole deer herd healthier uh, before we can really really start. And that's that's kind of job one. Let's let's get this deer herd in good shape. But it, it's amazing, and I'd love for you to speak to just how much uh, nutrition is needed and how it's relegated to go to body until at some point then it starts going toward antler. Yeah. And, um, again, this is probably stuff we're going to continue to, to learn about as, as we uncover all these little physiological secrets, uh, that, that are going on. Um, the, the antler cycle though, think of it like this. It is, it's, um, it's controlled by hormones and the cue for those hormones is what we call photoperiod. And so it's literally, you know, this is stuff we don't think of that a lot of animals keep track of in their head. It, it's the ratio of sunlight to darkness. And, and that is a clock every single year that is very, very reliable. It's not influenced by weather events. It's not influenced by how much it's raining or how cold or how hot it is, that ratio of sunlight to darkness and that triggers hormonal changes and bucks primarily testosterone and it's the fluctuations of testosterone are cueing antler growth and uh it, it is a really expensive tissue to grow I, I have to give credit though to does the, the thing that is more expensive than antler growth is growing a pair of fawns and producing milk for them. So let, let's not neglect how important it is. Uh, the nutrition during summer and end of summer is really, really important for does as well. But um, but yeah, it, it's a it's a really complex tissue, and that's the whole deal of that's kind of one of the characteristics that makes a deer a deer. You know, we would call them of the family the cervidae. The cervidae is the deer family taxonomically, and that's in, you know, elk and caribou and, and, and moose, et cetera, mule deer, whitetails. But they all grow antlers that are grown and shed an- annually. And, you know, when I start digging back on a lot of uh, research from way back, um, and this was actually from, from Europe, there was a, a researcher pre-World War II that did a lot of antler research and one of the most sensitive times of the year he found out that was important nutritionally was at the end of winter and beginning of spring and and so again when it gets to to habitat management when it gets to food plot management we're always saying you know don't ever completely clear the table you know you have to have these transitions from where you have a lot of your cool season forages, and as they are transitioning out, 
you want to also have those warm season forages coming in so that these deer always have uh, high quality forage available to them. And we, we put a lot of emphasis on protein and for, for good reason. Crude protein is really, really important. Um, but I also like to emphasize a diversity of diets. Um, once you even get beyond, you know, it, if you have agricultural plants or a lot of native plants, that if they're over 20%, some of these are even 30%, um, that's sufficient. That, that, that is completely sufficient. Your, your job is to make sure you have that quality of forage available to deer year round. And that's where it gets into not only managing food plots, but managing your habitat. And that's where things like prescribed fire come in and timing of prescribed fire can make sure that your habitat is providing a diversity of high quality foods year round. Did I just ramble too much for you, Bobby? No, no. <laughs> no. Uh, we're making notes here. L- listening yeah, to every you. time we talk to you, we learn something. We're just writing it down. So, so don't forget it. it. <laughs> it's so interesting. You know, you, I was listening to you talking about that late winter, early spring. And I, th- I think about Mississippi. And no, the month of February is a, is a pretty rough month. And, I, you know, when we started Biologic, I can remember then that, you know, people just cared about their deer herd from – the beginning of bow season mm-hmm. to the as soon as deer season was over, they they, they packed up their camp, locked the gate, yeah. and that was it. They didn't care about their deer anymore. And um, you know, it, but I can remember as we started having products that would last throughout the winter, uh, winter bulbs especially mm-hmm. that would feed deer all the way through February, and and hearing people talk about, oh my gosh, I'm seeing deer, they're just still annihilating that food plot mm-hmm. at, all the way in, into March and. And so, you know, we kind of learned that how important that is to, and, and we're we're proud to see people start recognizing that and taking advantage of it and trying to plant something specifically to do that. But then I think about the northern part of the United States, and I hear I've never witnessed it myself, but I hear that the deer up there yard up and gathering herds and just try to hunker down and make it through the make that, it through the winter. Yeah, and then they're eating. Uh, Bronson, you can speak of this better than I can, but they're eating branches off of trees that they normally would not. You would not see them eating, just trying to survive. And that's got to be a rough time for them. That that, that is uh, that is a uh, a, ter- <laughs> a terrible time uh, to be a deer, but but they're adapted to it, uh, and so those are conditions and. Um, you know, I, I, I use the words like, you know, a deer's thinking this through and they're not, you know, they don't have the cognition skills to think this through. These are just adaptations, behavioral adaptations over time. But but it's, it's a pretty reliable formula. These, these deer can figure out that sometimes the best thing to do to conserve energy is to do nothing. And that's why it's really, really important. And man, these, these bucks can have it, can have it really hard is that uh, they eat like crazy to try to put on as much body fat as possible. And then of course the rut comes along and a buck is going to lose 15, sometimes 20 or greater percent of, of their body weight. A lot of that, that being fat, but then you reach these times where the snow is really, really deep and they have to expend 
more energy than they can take in by eating twigs and bark and things like that that have really low calorie, really low digestibility, etc. Um, so you'll see in these yards, and sometimes they just elect not to move or move very little. And uh, I, I was involved tangentially with a project in the in the UP, uh, kind of looking at this: is what are the primary uh, determinants or factors in winter survival of a deer making it through the winter? And, and it was ended up being pretty simple. Ran all these complex models: is it this? Is it that? And it just came out to be really duration. If you have a winter that creeps on into spring or longer, it's almost like a formula. They have exhausted all of the reserves they have. They have nothing else they can do. Spring green up hasn't occurred yet, and a, and a lot of deer die. It's just kind of as simple as that. So, so yeah, Bobby, you brought, brought that up with deer yards. That, that's a tough place to be a deer. We, we don't experience that, luckily, here in the south or in Mississippi. Yeah, no, we, we yeah. don't. But we've seen the photos of it on our phones and internet and whatnot. It's crazy. Yeah, it is crazy. It is. Well, I tell you, the one thing I learned through this whole thing was, you know, and Bobby, I think you reinforced this uh, uh, several times. And not only have you reinforced it, you've, you've talked about it uh, for years, you know, wanting to overwhelm your deer herd with groceries. And, you know, that combined with Obviously, the main thing what we learned through this antler genesis um, uh, production was that antler genesis never ends. I mean, the your 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 challenge for creating the most highly nutritious food sources for your deer should never end. I used to think about plant spring plots for antler growth, plant fall plots, you know, to hunt them over. But in reality, it's all year round. Well, we uh, said from the from the very beginning with Bylock mm-hmm. that we wanted to carry that buck through the winter and through the rut and out of the rut in better physical shape than he had been he in previous in. years. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So that it, so much of the, his nourishment after the rut didn't have to go to replenish his body right. as much. So, uh, it, I mean, it's in theory, it all sounds good and that's mm-hmm. what, we're, what we're trying to do, but boy, it is a complicated process. And then I guess the other difficult time of year is what extremely late summer. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that that's really unique to the South and especially the Deep South. Uh, of course, as we just were talking a moment ago, the the stressful period for a deer far up north is wintertime. Yes, the, the green, the grim reaper of winter. Um, but believe it or not, and this is you know one of the most surprising things when you talk to people that don't know a lot about deer or they're new at it and and deer management yeah man late summer's tough late summer is really tough it's really hot uh you have a lot of plants that are maybe in the process of dying you know those summer or warm season annual plants and we we haven't shifted into cool season plants the acorns are not dropping yet and i'll tell you another thing guys we're we're uncovering now is uh it's just the heat when, when we look back, and, and again, we're lucky enough to have uh, MDWFMP and the data set that they collect, but um, Steve and I at the Deer Lab, we have, you know, literally just about a million records of uh, uh, deer, uh, doe and, and bucks uh, for the past uh, over 20 years. And 
we really expected guys to find that the amount of rainfall during summer was going to be influential because again this feedback system we have with the biologists the biologists may come and say you know for whatever reason every club i go to their body weights are down about 10 pounds this year and so when you accumulate enough data and enough years you can start looking at well why might that be and and all of us collectively our knee-jerk reaction was well it's just probably a really dry summer or it's a really wet summer or something like that and what always kept rising to the top was just deer having to deal with really, really high heat, just successive hot days. And that led to digging into some of, you know, the more animal science, livestock literature. And, and yeah, um, deer don't like to move around as much. They're not going to maybe forage as much when it's so doggone hot. Mm-hmm. Like, like Lanny, you started to say at the beginning, like it started now. It got hot, and it got hot in a hurry <laughs> here in the last few weeks in Mississippi. But mm. uh, all that stuff takes its toll on them. And it's just getting started, Bronson. <laughs> it's just <laughs> it's getting tip started. You know, and ticks have got oh, I was fixed to bring ticks up. Yeah. 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 So, Bronson, I've got a question. That, and this, it, it, as I think about antler genesis, I, I, don't, I don't know the answer to this, and it's probably not a – it's probably not a smart question, but I'm going to ask it anyway. But so like with a, a pregnant doe, I think of the average is like um, it's 202 days, if I'm not mistaken, from the time she's bred to when the fawn's born. Yeah, you're right it, in the ballpark. Is, yeah, 205, is, 210, yeah. Is there a number of days from the time the buck sheds his antlers and antler genesis starts till he rubs them? clean of velvet um that is an excellent question it it is one i do not have an actual number for you but i can give you a general number (laughs) when we started i was talking about the a third of the bucks are mobile and a third of the bucks are sedentary I, I, i like to keep things really simple uh like like Bobby, you were saying 200 days, I'd say seven months. Gestation length's about seven months. With the antler cycle, I typically say six months and six months. Um, from casting until, you know, you start to see the growth all the way out until antler hardening and then rubbing that velvet off, etc. It's about six months, give or take. And then you're going to have about six months of a being in hard antler before they shed again well so what makes me ask the question is uh you know our friends the juries and the Lindsays, all these people that have farms up in iowa and missouri and we see their deer start shedding in january and but it seems like their deers their deer their bucks come out of velvet at the same time our bucks come out of velvet Mm. i don't i could be wrong it could be just i'm just not paying that much attention to it but it seems like about the same time they come out of velvet and if that's the case it seems like their deer have maybe 45 extra days of potential growth Mm -hmm. and i'm probably wrong in assuming that but that's why i'm gonna have to look into yeah that that's uh that's a good question and uh it, it is one uh, me and some other guys have kicked around before and, and we have literally Bobby literally we have talked about how can we get a good data set so we could you know latitudinally from way up north all the way down south how can we really examine that and maybe it's trail cam photos or what 
Uh, we would love to get a good definitive answer for you on that. Um, these here are some, I guess, some some theories, some speculation. You know, you can see the the, the purpose of antlers. As much as we like to look at them, uh, the purpose of the antler is really it's not to fight off wolves or coyotes. It's for what we call male-male combat. That's number one. They're using that so they can collide and fight and have a shoving match to work out their social dominance hierarchy. And then it's also a signal. It can be a signal to another male to another buck saying, I'm bigger than you, don't mess with me. There's no need to there's no need to fight. It can also, as we're uncovering, uh, and Bobby, I think I think we had a episode of Gamekeepers on this as well, one a TV show. It can also be uh, a signal for females as well. Um, if a buck has really big antlers, it's it's a signal saying uh, I have the genetics and I am also good enough to secure the resources because nutrition is part of that equation too. I can secure the resources to grow big antlers. Therefore, I'm you know I, I'm worthy uh, to be a mate and to breed with. So leading into your question there, um, once we get through the breeding season, and, and in general, I, I know I'm, I'm uh, painting with a broad brush here, but their rut is typically a, a month or six weeks ahead of ours as well. So once they get through the rut and then they have the post-rut recovery period, they're, they're really not needing antlers anymore. And so the testosterone levels can drop, the antlers are shed, and maybe they are maybe they have a longer period of time there without antlers, without high testosterone, without um, being in the mood to fight and defend and so forth in the dead of winter. And, and so maybe it's a strategy in that part of the world to survive and to keep as much body mass as you can and get testosterone out of your system and focus on eating. Yeah, that could make sense. It does make a lot of sense. When I first bought this farm a short time ago, every single field was growing up with brush eight and 10 feet high. But it went from that to this. And even though I planted Biologic with very little moisture in the ground, I was really amazed at the results. I just sat in this field with my wife as she shot her very first deer. We could not be happier. We made a memory that will last a lifetime. All because of the effectiveness of the best food plot seed on the market. Biologic is better seed, pure and simple. Log on to plantbiologic.com to learn more. Well, I tell you the study on when y'all that you're referencing where you remove those deer horns and replace them with smaller ones and put the big ones on the small deer. That was cool. That mm-hmm. was an amazing study. It really was. We got to dig some of that stuff back up. Yeah. The, the, and folks, well, I think folks can go to the Mossy Oak Go app and watch yeah, that, if I'm right. not mistaken. Exactly right. but, and I think that show is called Size Matters. Yeah, maybe. Size Matters. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I know. Yeah, what- and I guess the bottom line with that is that was a theory we always had about antlers. You know, we, we knew the, the purpose from the fighting standpoint, and those those things are kind of obvious. But we had always wondered: are, are they really a cue for a doe? You know, if a doe, if you control for everything else, the two bucks are the exact same age, the two bucks are the exact same body size, 
And then you have this appendage, this, you know, in the biological world, we call it this ornament, you know, on top of his mm-hmm. head. Is that going to attract a female? And and in our study, it certainly did. More more times than not, uh, a female would sidle up um, and, and show the, you know, the tendency getting ready to breed to, to the bucks with, with large antlers. Wow. Well, so that buck can't see his own antlers. Oh, that's it, true. He's just got to have he an attitude. look in the mirror every morning like you do when he gets ready. <laughs> well, he can look in the water. <laughs> yeah, he can he look probably... in the water. Good point. Oh, me. Well, that's some, some amazing research. There's no doubt about it. Well, Lanny, you got any yeah, more you know, questions? So, Go ahead, well, Bryson. Bobby, you, you, you had an uh, interesting thought there. We thought about that, too. Like, how do they, how do they figure that out? Did, did they know? Uh, you know, the, the size and confirmation. And uh, actually, uh, I think it was Donnie Drager who who is on the, the next episode of Game Keepers are coming up. Um, and he has this remarkable uh, footage from helicopter. And it's almost like when you are seeing those bucks just running wide open through the brush and how when they are bounding and turning their head and going above and below – you look at that and you really do think they know the size of their antler. It's almost like it truly is an extension that they can feel uh, because the way that they can maneuver through that brush without getting an antler hung on a limb or something, they, they definitely have an awareness. Uh, and, and then when they're, when they're rubbing out, you know, they we know. tend to think too that maybe that's contributing to the memory you know, they're feeling where it is and where they have antler and where they don't. And, and, and maybe they remember that, you know, from year to year. Interesting. You know, we always said that buck was so big, he had to turn his head sideways <laughs> running through the woods. <laughs> <laughs> so they got to know. Yeah. I can hear some old man at the hunting camp saying that now. Oh, uh, yeah. <laughs> they, they, you know, they just truly are fascinating animals. Fascinating. No and, doubt uh, about it. And, and I... You know, in this this show, I think I made the comment that I still have the very first shed antler yeah. I ever found, and that was a long time ago. I was about fifteen years old when I found it, and it's a treasure to me. Was that before or after you turned your back on Jim? That was after. That was after. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> old bird dog. <laughs> it's you know, but you think about all the people that have been a affected by whitetails oh man we know look we love obviously as gamekeepers we love all aspects of the outdoors and managing every one of them but you know if uh, i would say the you know majority of the hunting public and and i think the majority of the resources bronson you'd be able to validate that um is is pointed you know towards the whitetail here in north america and it's an amazing amazing animal there's no doubt about it well, if you look at the economic engine of it as well, and you look at the, the, the purpose of a hunting license being sold in the South and in Mississippi, it, it can fluctuate a little bit, but, but bottom line on the average, seven out of every 10 licenses that are sold, it's, it's sold for, for, for deer hunting to pursue white-tailed deer. The effect of that, the downstream effect of that too, in terms of from buying the license and buying the equipment, and the lease or the property, et cetera, et cetera, it goes on and on. It's a billion dollar, a mm-hmm. billion with a B, billion dollar annual economic impact to Mississippi. And, and the same for all the other surrounding southeastern states. So, yeah, they're, they're a big deal ecologically, and they're just as big of a deal economically to the southeast. Mm. You know, I hope 
that uh, the, through the efforts of what you guys are doing and you know the, all the state management areas management de- wildlife departments that that we can keep the deer where they need to be and not get uh, have problems down the road. I, I hope that we're not one day we don't look back and go, boy, you remember how it was back in 2015? Yeah. That that was the heyday. I, I just hope it can continue to get better and better with with educate educating the consumer as to how they need to behave and how they, you know, not only in, in managing the animals but managing our behavior as well. And I, I, I don't see people ride around with their tailgate down as much showing yeah. off deer as they used to. You know, that's just something we need to control ourselves and behave a little bit better. But it's a it's a, it, deer season is a magical time of the year, and it Im- impacts a lot of people. It sure does. Yeah, obviously, all the people on this call, you know, I don't know what we'd be doing every day. No. Yeah. <laughs> but, you know, like in the north, in Michigan, Pennsylvania. It's huge. The, the, Opening day of deer season is is a holiday. Oh, sometimes yeah, schools, schools will come yeah, out. Schools yeah. Come out. Yeah. yeah, I mean that's. And what was it? If you take all the hunters that are out on opening day in the world, it's the largest standing army in the world. I think that's right. Mm-hmm. I it, it is. It's an it really truly is an amazing thing. So amazing thing, amazing animal, and amazing what you can you can continue continue to learn. Uh, about them and with them even though you know we've been fascinated all of us here uh for years and trying to learn everything we can about them it's always more to learn so look bronson to kind of sum it all up if if you could kind of explain if what a guy can do to help have a positive impact on antler genesis if he's got a 400 acre farm and it's he and his family that are hunting it what can he do to have a positive impact and try to grow a healthier deer and, and ultimately bigger antlers. Yeah, you bet. Um, it, it's really simple. It's really, really simple. The execution can be complicated, but the bottom line, it, it's these two things, keeping the, the deer density under control. And so that just simply means <clears throat> if, if you can't put too many cows on the pasture If you're a forester, you can't stock the forest too dense. If you do, the quality of the tree or the quality of the cow is going to suffer. So it's basic numbers like that. And so you might say, well, how can you tell? And there's a whole bunch of really complex ways to do it. Here's a real simple, real simple thing people can do. When you harvest deer towards the end of deer season, so I'll be biased and I'll use the Mississippi, for example. When you're harvesting a buck or two or harvesting does at the end of deer season, look at their body as you skin them. Do they have fat? Do they have a bunch of fat on their back, internal in their cavity? Do they have a – if you are not seeing any fat on your deer in January, you got to do one of two things. You've got to add more food or you've got to reduce the number of animals. So so number one, keeping your deer density in perspective and context of the habitat you have. Now, if we want to move to managing the habitat, there's some things you can do that are relatively easy and some things that are, of course, a little more complex. But things that most people can do affordably are things like food plots. And that is just adding high-quality herbaceous plants in the fall, winter, spring, summer of the year 
So you're increasing diet quality. Now, think of it, too, at scale. There are, you know, if you got a couple hundred acres and you only have a quarter acre food plot, you may positively impact a few deer. But you're probably not going to see big changes in antler size because you're not doing it at sufficient scale. So to change the average antler size of your population, you've got to change the average diet quality of the population. And you just think about that. Instead of the average being, you know, access to a deer is 14% crude protein or some other nutrient, you're bumping that up to 16, 17, 18%. It can take a lot of work. Where you usually can really improve and go beyond food plots, if you have access, if you own the property or you have permission, a lot of times when you lease land, you can't do this, but move into managing the habitat by getting sunlight on the ground. That's number one. Usually that means thinning trees, cutting them down, having a thinning uh, timber operation, getting sunlight on the ground to grow plants will change diet quality for deer. And then how do you keep it going? You keep it going because if you go do a clear cut or you go cut down some trees, you've all seen it before. Sunlight's going to hit the ground the next growing season. you got these green plants and pokeweeds popping up and blackberry and all. That's all great. But if you walk away five years later, it's going to turn into a forest again. The, the woody seedlings are, are going to colonize. And so now you're back into trees and the sunlight's not getting on the ground. Now we start adding things like prescribed fire. Now we start adding things like if you can get a tractor back there, let's disc it and let's set that cycle back again. And so doing things like that provides food. And also, if you're talking about that 400 acre person, now you're providing high quality cover. So now you're getting deer to spend more time on your property because you're offering everything for them, food and cover. Wow, I, I guess that's my that's my summer. Guys. There you have it. Yeah, no, that's great. That's exactly what we you know we're we're trying to shine a light and trying to educate people because we've got guys. We we always say whether you've got four acres, forty or four hundred or four thousand, mm-hmm. there's things that you can do. And whether you're in a hunting club or you own your land or you've got a deer leash, there are things that you can do to improve the habitat, improve your deer herd, and 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 be a gamekeeper and. So hearing you kind of say exactly what needs to be done at a at a big level is important. Yeah, it's a pleasure always talking to you, Bronson. I mean, I learn something every time, and that's why we call you what we call you. <laughs> Doctor well, Know-It-All. Know know know. What in the world is the mole hole? Mossy Oak Land Enhancement Services. Services. So, yeah. So that's the pet name of this complex you've been to down here. It's an old, you know, you're familiar with this old lumber supply place that Toxic got years ago, and we've just converted it into our own personal research and development for gamekeepers and biologic and native nurseries. And, you know, it's just the hub for land and wildlife stuff uh, for Mossy Oak. Okay, well... I've seen it all these years yeah. and, and talked to y'all. I've, I've never heard you. We're going to put a sign up that says, welcome to the mole hole. <laughs> <laughs> well, we really appreciate you being Absolutely. on the, the podcast today and, and appreciate all your support through through the years. And, 
you know, we've enjoyed uh, doing things with you, and we hope that continues. Yeah, I'm looking forward to what y'all are coming out with next. There's no doubt about it. Well, can I plug something that we have coming out next? Absolutely. Absolutely. In closing here. Um, so I've already mentioned about our, our podcast, Dear University. And so this is a kind of this is a kind of stuff we talk about. Um, what Steve and I, Steve Damaris, he's my, my colleague, friend, and co-director of the MSU Deer Lab. Um, we are developing, um, really, I guess it was out of necessity at first, we needed to, to start developing more of this type of media uh, because of the situation we're in now with COVID, coronavirus, et cetera. Um, and we can't get out and do as much face-to-face engagement right now. We're developing what we call our online seminar series. And essentially that is uh, every year we would put on seminars and workshops. Some of them might be a couple hours. Some of them might be a couple days. But we're in the process of taking that now and putting all of that online. And so we're hoping to get that release here, maybe hopefully, fingers crossed, in, in July. And and we're going to start it out. It's probably going to be like our, our most popular 12 to 15 different seminars that, that we've done over the years. And we're going to keep building on that. So uh, I would just love to encourage your, your audience, if they check out our podcast or go to our website or our social media, we're on Facebook and all that other stuff. Um, we will do announcements about the uh, online deer management series is, is up and running, and we'll provide a website. They can come in and watch and learn all this stuff we've talked about. Oh, Sweet. That, that, that's, that's exciting. Yeah. You know, there's and, and, and we'll stay in touch with you, and we'll we'll plug you all again on that and have you all on as, as guests. We're big fans of I Personally, Dr. Demarius, I've been real impressed with him through the years. He's been Absolutely. Just as a person, he's just a really, really nice guy, he but is. he knows his what he's no. talking about. He sure – he's been doing it a long time, and, and he's he's as good as they get. He sure surely is. He's great. Well, look, thank you for being here. And uh, I, I think we've held Lanny about as long as we possibly could hold, hold him. He's <laughs> – he may he, he's ready to move on to something else. Dudley looks like he's about to go to sleep, what? but that's the way Dudley looks all the time. <laughs> I twitch all the time too. So. <laughs> but I would like to tell everybody that uh, there's also another podcast. Cuz has got one mm-hmm. called Fistful of Dirt, and and that's a great one. If you're if you enjoy podcasts, you, you ought to go listen. Yeah, to that he just one. had Austin Glenn on, you know, from Biologic, our own food plot dude. Yeah, so this is something new we're getting started, and we, we appreciate if you you know if, if you enjoy it, tell your friends about it, y'all. Uh, pick up our magazine uh, or watch us on uh, the Gamekeeper Television Show because all we're trying to do is uh, teach people how to be gamekeepers and enjoy the outdoors twelve months out of the year, and we we think that's uh, an important thing to do. Sounds hey, Bronson, like we appreciate you. We really respect what the MSU Deer Lab does and what you do for us each every every week and every time we ask. So, thanks for being here. Yeah, thank you, gentlemen. Appreciate the relationship we have with with, with y'all. It, it's uh, it, it is really um, it's so nice to to know we have good colleagues like you just down the road a little way. So always glad to help y'all any way I can. Thank you very much for the opportunity. Yeah, when all this COVID stuff's over with, you can come back to the mole hole, man. Come eat lunch with <laughs> come us. Come eat lunch with us. Yeah, hang out. <laughs> I can't wait to see it again. Great. Well, y'all stay safe out there. Let us know. If Thanks, we can do Bronson. Anything. Thanks, Bronson. Okay, guys, we'll talk to you later. All right, thank you. All right, bye-bye. 
Thanks for tuning in to this week's episode of the Gamekeeper Podcast. And be sure to tune in again. Subscribe to Gamekeeper Farming for Wildlife magazine. And don't miss the Mossy Oak Properties Fistful of Dirt podcast with my good buddy, Ronnie Cuz Strickland.